If you want to know what it's like to have a fourth, just imagine you're drowning, and then someone hands you a baby. I like you just the way you are. You're braver than you believe, and stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. Parenting is a sacrifice, it's exhausting, it's expensive, at times it feels thankless, but eventually you die. Welcome to the Kid Doc Good Job Being the Mom podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping mothers and fathers through supporting, enabling, and empowering them in their amazing role as parents. Well, we are recording this episode the week before school starts, which is a time when all families are planning for a gradual transition from the summer chaos to a regimented school schedule. Invariably, though, families think, oh no, school starts tomorrow. We had all summer to prepare for this. Good luck, kids. Right. I don't know. You know, and the biggest part of this transition is this sharp cliff that kids fall off when they cannot sleep in as long as they want to with that summer light being a really powerful signal to be up during the evening. For sure. Why do we need sleep? So sleep is a chance to reset and kind of clear the brain overnight. And everything about how your brain works goes through how well you sleep. So headaches, seizures, mental health, academic and athletic performance are all affected. And so sleep is one of my three key pillars for good health, along with hydration and nutrition. Yeah, parents often want to know how to establish healthy sleep routines. So I believe that sleep hygiene is the most important component of healthy sleep, where you establish a consistent bedtime for weeknights and weekends with no more than about one hour of variability on bedtime and waking up time. So this means having a consistent routine that includes all screens off an hour before your desired bedtime. And use that hour before bed to have relaxing activities, reading, writing, coloring, drawing, showering, or bathing, etc. And so you need this transition time to sleep to allow your mind to relax. And so transitioning to sleep and it's time to relax. And then when you are in bed, you're only there to fall asleep. So no reading or screens. Otherwise, your brain is confused about what you want it to do. So are we staying awake or are we going to bed? Now, what are we doing here? So stay out of bed until you're ready to fall asleep. What does bedtime look like? Bedtime is based on math. So start with when you need to get up and then work backward to get the amount of sleep that is needed for that child. And there's lots of variability from kid to kid. So, for example, if you go to bed when you're tired and wake up spontaneously, what does that look like for you? When should you go to bed? And that's based on when you have to get up in the morning And we all have differences on when your body wants to go to bed and wake up. And the conflicts arise when you have this individual's body, natural bedtime and waking up time. And then you have school or work that throws you off. So start with when you have to be awake, then come up with the bedtime based on how much sleep you should be getting. Is there a best time for going to bed? That's a good question, because if you really want to know for your specific child, then you're saying, how much sleep does this child need? What is the right timing and amount for them? Then have them go to bed when they're sleepy and wake up naturally over a couple of weeks. So going to bed when they're sleepy is the timing, and when they wake up is the amount of sleep. This helps you determine how much time your child needs. Then the best time to go to bed is affected by what they have to do the next day. 
Sounds good. Let's get back to what is the ideal environment for bedtime? Make the routine as standard as possible for the child. Set the environment where you establish the lighting needs. And this should be as dark as possible without making them scared. Have the room on the cooler side, maybe high 60s, low 70s or best. Then the room should be as quiet as possible. And there may be spikes of noise throughout the night from inside or outside. So white noise can drown out the inside or outside noises. And then pets in the room can be disruptive as they stir. And all these things can fragment sleep and decrease the quality as the brain reacts to the sounds and movements and stimulation. Should they have a nightlight? A nightlight can be okay, but we want the room as dark as possible and they can still feel comfortable and safe. And for sure, avoid the blue spectrum. So maybe a red light may be the best color if you're going to have one. So you talked about doing the math to establish bedtimes for children. How many hours of sleep are needed for children of different ages? So starting with infants need about 14 to 16 hours between night and day sleeping. And then you have decreasing amounts through adolescence until we expect about eight hours by the time they stop growing at about 15 for girls and 17 for boys. So specifically, you're talking about 11 to 14 hours for toddlers, 10 to 13 hours for preschool kids and nine to 12 hours for school age kids. And then for teenagers, about eight to 10 hours. And these are really general guidelines and individual sleep needs may vary, as I mentioned before, about observing what they do if you allow a natural going to sleep time and waking up time. So it's important for parents to observe their children's behavior and adjust sleep schedules accordingly. But in general, most teens need more than they think or more than they actually get. Yeah. Some say they need to read or watch TV to fall asleep. How much of that is true? This is really just an excuse. And these activities are stimulating the brain and prevent you from falling asleep. I think people do fall asleep reading and watching TV because eventually the brain becomes so exhausted they do fall asleep. So they kind of associate reading and TV watching as being effective. Now, what's the relationship between blue light and melatonin production? That's a great question with all the screens we have in our lives. So blue light decreases melatonin. So watching screens is bad, but worse is interacting with screens. So phone and video games, which amplifies the melatonin suppression effect. So no screens for at least one hour before desired bedtime. What about exercise before bed? And oftentimes kids have activities that can run late into the night. And I think about that for you kids, especially you had late night dance and yeah. all kinds of activities and school things. And so I say exercise is helpful if it's not too close to bedtime. So you want to be tired and this can help, but it is common to have athletes home from dance or sports late and then have homework and then have to go to sleep. And so if they are managing these well, then great. But if they are fatigued and not doing well, then there are choices you have to make and you may have to give something up. And we are all so overscheduled and there's no way around that. And you cannot force to sleep if we have activities that prevent it. I think I've seen with kids that have had mono or concussions and those kind of things where they just had to make choices and what matters most. And sometimes that means giving something up if your sleep's not doing very well. Yeah. Yeah. What about music as a tool to go to bed? So relaxing music can be good, but... I think, again, interacting with the music on your phone makes it worse. And I will add that using the phone for an alarm can be a problem as they have the phone close by and they get alerts throughout the night and they're interacting with it again. So remove the phone from the room and use another device for alarms and for music if possible. 
I do like your resource called genotelab.com. And I'll put that at the end of the, the podcast transcript, but genotelab.com for its music protocols for sleep and relaxation. What about naps and do naps disrupt nighttime sleep? That's a great question because we're talking about this sleep pressure and sleep pressure refers to the pressure the body has to fall asleep. And this pressure is relieved with a nap and that decreases the correct timing of the pressure to fall asleep at night. So with naps, they stop at about three naturally. And, and so I would try to avoid naps if you're having a hard time falling asleep at night. I do recommend having a scheduled quiet time after lunch to last about one hour. And that can be used for sleep or for playing in the room. We hear a lot about sleep deficit and teens wanting to sleep until noon for sleep deficit payback on the weekend. Let's talk about that. So paying, paying back the sleep deficit is a total fallacy. Um, I, I know everybody does it, but if you are sleep deprived on weekdays, trying to catch up on the weekend just doesn't work. So if you are struggling with fatigue, you need consistency in your sleep schedule. So your body knows what to expect and develops these natural rhythms. But like I said before, the brain gets confused when we ask different things of it. Are you wanting me to stay awake or go to sleep? What's happening here? So bedtime and waking up time shouldn't vary by more than an hour weekday to weekend if we are trying to promote good sleep. And I say if you are okay being tired, then don't worry about being consistent with your routine. And some just require more discipline than others to not be fatigued. It's not fair. But if you struggle, this is part of the solution. And I say to try it for two weeks and see how it goes. We also hear a lot about it being easier to have the child sleep with the parent instead of solving the problem of having them sleep in their own bed. And it may seem more exhausting to tackle the problem than just putting up with how you are doing. Yeah, and I hear that a lot. I totally understand it. And there's a doctor, Dr. Sears, who talks about the family bed concept of just having the kids in bed with you for years and so. Um, and I think this may work with the first child, but as you have more kids, you just get too tired with kids kicking you in the face and you don't get good sleep. And, and so having your child in bed to help them fall asleep with you complicates the problem. And I tell people when you're ready, it takes a commitment to break the cycle and be strong. And you really can't go back and forth from night to night where some nights you want them in their bed, some nights you're in with you. You need to either be all in or it will reinforce to the kids to keep looking for these exceptions for when they can get into your bed. So be consistent. It's a short-term pain, but it's beneficial in the long run. Let's talk about how to deal with sleep disturbances. And there are really two kinds, difficulty falling asleep and difficulty staying asleep. Let's first address difficulty going to sleep. What are solutions for children who have a difficult time falling asleep? So it's kind of a rehash of what we talked about before in some areas, but establishing a calming bedtime routine that we discussed with all of the sleep hygiene and consistency, making sure you have that comfortable sleep environment that is cozy and optimized for darkness and temperature and sound. Review the child's screen time habits, and then utilize all the relaxing and mindful exercises and activities in your toolbox. And I think consider exercise to help increase the fatigue. Remember that helps out if you're tired, but not too close to bedtime. Make sure they've had their second dinner or kind of bedtime snack so they aren't hungry. And for older kids, be careful about whether they are taking any, any caffeine, which can impact sleep even from six hours before. What if we do all these things and still are having a hard time getting them to sleep? 
I think try to understand what, what is the main issue at the core of their difficulty falling asleep. And there may be problems with insomnia or anxiety or anxiety. How do you help kids with insomnia? So with insomnia, I'm really trying to figure out what the obstacles are to falling asleep, maybe electronics, distractions, anxiety. And I try to review their scheduling. So I'll say, tell us what your bedtime routine looks like, starting with getting home from school all the way to bedtime. So what's your routine? How is your sleep hygiene? How late are they doing homework? The, the kiddo can't just close their math book and then fall asleep. They've been you know, focusing and working hard. They need time to wind down. If they don't have that time, then what is interfering with that? And so kind of work towards the ideal. What if anxiety is the obstacle to falling asleep? With anxiety, we have this trouble quieting our thoughts at night. Your brain kind of brings all these things up to the forefront when it's quiet and you cannot fall asleep. So the techniques to work through that can come through counseling. I will refer people for therapy to work on that. Um, some have what we call this kind of psychophysiologic insomnia, kind of brain-body insomnia, where they lay in bed for a long period of time and they can't fall asleep. And it becomes a cycle unto itself. And now they identify with being a bad sleeper. And that alone makes it hard to fall asleep. So for this, I try to do all the bedtime activities outside the room and out of the bed. And then the bed is used only to fall asleep. Are there any medication sleep aids that you use? You know, I will discuss the pharmacologic sleep aids like melatonin to help induce sleep. And that, that's best with helping to manipulate their circadian rhythm. And so I'll say, take that about 30 minutes to a couple hours before sleep or desired bedtime. And so... When we're trying to mimic the natural melatonin, it's most helpful to move the bedtime to a best time. And I'll use two to three milligrams, up to 10 milligrams in larger patients. And there has been some discussion about the side effects of the early onset of puberty as it affects parts of your brain and then nightmares for some. But if it's used properly, it's safe. And I talk about how to do that by you know, taking breaks from melatonin uh, every few months. Um, it's helpful in correcting jet lag. And people ask about the long-term use suppressing the natural melatonin, but th th all the studies we have show this isn't a problem. I don't like using antihistamines like Benadryl because they have this hangover effect. The next day, they're still tired. And there are a couple of other medications for harder situations like prescription clonidine and trazodone. But in general, I prefer to address the underlying issues rather than medicating. Let's move this sec to the second category of sleep problems, difficulty staying asleep. Well, we all wake up at night. And so the question is, what do we do with that when we wake up? And you know, is it still dark? Go back to sleep. But um, can we manage it by ourselves or do we need some help to manage going back to sleep? So I want no rewards for the child waking up. So consider that the child is trying to figure out what works. And if there is some reward like spending time with you, then they will keep coming into you at night. So how we address nighttime waking up episodes looks a lot like how we address sleeping at the start of a night. So it's most important to create expectations with the child for how to go back to sleep the same way they went to sleep the first time. So a key to manage sleep in the middle of the night is how we manage sleep at the start of the night. Yeah. I mean, for example, consider what happens when they wake up. Can they soothe themselves back to sleep? If they cannot, they call it for mom. Then you go back to the bedtime routine and however that goes. So if at the start of a night, the child has learned to fall asleep with a parent, so mom or dad lays down with me until I fall asleep, then the parent becomes the transitional object. And so they have to have you to transition to sleep. So when they wake up at night and they want the same thing, they have a habit, an expectation, 
they don't know any other way to go back to sleep. Only way they know how is if mom or dad is there. So it all begins with the start of the night. So remember, remember that it's normal for children to wake up briefly during the night. And the goal is help, to help them develop the ability to self-soothe and fall back asleep independently. So consistency in your responses and patience will go a long way in helping your child establish these healthy sleep patterns. What does that look like in the middle of the night? So that's really calm and consistent reassurance and redirection back to the bed. Just be really consistent and getting them right back in ASAP. It's avoiding stimulating activities like feeding them or you know reading to them, whatever. And they want to interact and play and do things with you, but you need to be consistent to get them right back to bed so there is no reward for their behavior, even if they are sad. And they are going to use all the big guns. I'm scared. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. And these are all the most basic needs that resonate with us and push your kind-hearted buttons. Would you try to figure out why they're waking up? Definitely. You know, is there too much light? So decrease it. Is the temperature off? Is there too much noise? Where white noise would be helpful to filter that. If they are afraid, make sure they have their magic blankets for protection and magic dollies and weapons to keep them safe, like lightsabers and nerf guns to empower them. And help them find their transitional objects, their bears or dollies to comfort themselves back to sleep instead of you having to be the transitional object to fall back to sleep. Could we be missing any medical reasons or medical problems that are causing them to wake up at night? Definitely, if the night awakenings persist, consider factors such as allergies, sleep apnea, or other medical conditions that may be affecting your child's sleep. And I can help with that. Um, we are trying to understand why are they waking up? Are there issues with their breathing? They might have sleep apnea. And so evaluate that. Yeah. Would you say that one of the most common medical problems affecting sleep is sleep apnea? Yes, this is very common. Um, it isn't as common as snoring, which gets people, I think, thinking about sleep apnea. So they can snore pretty badly and still not have sleep apnea. So with sleep apnea, they actually have pauses in their breathing where they are trying to breathe, but they can't. And so they have to change position and disrupt their sleep pattern to continue breathing. And this happens all through the night. So they may have a good number of hours of, in the bed, but their sleep quality is terrible. The other symptoms to watch for is they will breathe through their mouth a lot and they will be tired and grumpy in the day. Also important to evaluate poor sleep as a possibility when they have poor school performance, when you're considering ADHD. How do you evaluate sleep apnea? I use a sleep apnea questionnaire with a bunch of questions that go along the lines of what I just talked about. And if if they're positive for a lot of items for sleep apnea, then I will, will refer to ENT. Um, then a, a sleep study can also be very helpful with their sleep disordered breathing. And this is best done someplace that does frequent evaluations with children. What is the treatment for sleep apnea? That continues to be removing tonsils and adenoids by an ENT surgeon. And there are some positioning devices, and they have the CPAP, like for adults, that can be used. And let's briefly mention restless leg syndrome as an uncommon problem that keeps people from falling asleep at night. Yeah, I think people mention that a lot as if, like, you know, their legs hurt. Probably a lot of that is things like growing pains. But this is actually, with restless legs, is an uncomfortable sensation in the legs that is worse at night and is worse at rest and better with movement. It interferes with the ability to fall asleep or stay asleep. So beginning of the night, it interferes with the duration of sleep. So it's very disruptive and disabling. Is there a treatment for it? So if you're thinking about restless legs, then you want to check iron levels, including ferritin, and then we'll have a goal to get these levels to a higher range. And there are some medications that we can use like 
neurontin, and benzodiazepines. For the last segment, let's talk about specific conditions that arise during sleep and they are grouped into segments, the non-REM parasomnias and REM parasomnias. The non-REM parasomnias are the night terrors, sleepwalking, and sleep talking. The REM parasomnias are nightmares. So let's start, cover night terrors, sleepwalking, and sleep talking first. What is the basis behind these conditions? So with these, you have awake activity that has slipped into times of deep sleep. They are not awake, but they are doing these awake appearing behaviors. And they usually appear during the first couple of hours after falling asleep. And when they happen, the, the kiddo shouldn't remember them the next day. They should behave the same the next day, same behavior, same mood, like they never happened. How do we best manage them? So keep them safe. So safety first. This is a confused state for the patient. So guide them back to their bed if, they're, if they've been moving around. Do not awaken them. There can be harm to the patient or the caregiver. Um, this can be very troubling to watch, especially the night terrors, but stay calm while helping the child by managing back to the safety of their bed with minimal interaction and the soft guidance. I talk about alarms. Um, and what I mean by that is that one key for sleepwalking is to make sure that the home is secured with locks or alarms to make sure a child doesn't wind up outside without our knowledge in the snow or on the street or something like that, you know, where we don't know what happened to them. Yeah. Are there things we can do to prevent these conditions? So they're worsened by sleep deprivation. So a consistent sleep schedule and a bedtime routine reduces the occurrence of night terrors. Or said the other way, they are worsened by irregular sleep-wake schedules. So manage any factors that might contribute to night terrors, such as stress, sleep deprivation, or illness. Also high temperatures, whether it be a fever or the room is too hot. So try and keep the room cool and, of course, manage fevers. Is there a treatment for them? Remember that most kids outgrow these night terrors as they get older. So medicate, so no medications are needed unless there's really a perceived danger to themselves or others. And so we use some benzodiazepines at bedtime to help them out sometimes. And then for nightmares, these are different from the others because the child is still in REM sleep. Yeah, so the, the child has lost the usual lack of tone that should happen with REM sleep. So they are acting on their dreams and thoughts during their REM sleep. What can we do for prevention? Well, because we can hear what they are concerned about, what they're talking about, or they can they can remember their nightmare, I try to limit exposure to the stimulus that worries or scares them. So I try to limit their anxiety or fears. And it may even be something benign like purple cartoon dinosaurs like Barney. And so that I think is pretty harmless. And so, but limit exposure to content that scares the child or may be considered scary. Maybe limiting their media exposure in general is a good idea here. Agreed. The less is the better. And you like to advocate for empowering children, as we've discussed. Yeah. Empower kids when they have nightmares. Uh, let them have their magic blankets to keep them safe, that can protect them from monsters, and, and have their lightsabers and Nerf guns to provide security. And this can go along with an imaginary friend or protector, such as one of their stuffed animals that can keep the child safe. I recommend providing comfort from things they are afraid of, um, and reassurance that they are safe while not minimizing their concern that something is real while empowering them to be stronger than what they are afraid of. And also talk about their fears during the day to help with perspective. A timely topic is the use of sleep evaluation devices like cell phones or wearables. How helpful are they? 
I think first we want to limit the phones being in the room anyway, because it leads to people interacting with them, even if the original intent was good. And second, the smartphones and devices are not very accurate, but it's still a good attempt to try and have better sleep quality. But they're not accurate REM and deep sleep assessments. So don't spend time on them to help evaluate sleep quality. What would you recommend a sleep study if needed if, um, at times? Yeah, and so I'd recommend a sleep study when they're helpful for evaluating disordered breathing, like sleep apnea, or disordered movements during sleep. And they also are not good at telling how well they are sleeping. But you can imagine you're in this very artificial environment in a strange room attached to wires and tube. People are watching you and visiting you all night long. So it's not really going to evaluate how well you're sleeping. And do you have any references for sleep resources? Yeah, these are ones that we've shared before and you've shared before. So it's it's two books, which are Healthy Sleep Habits, Happy Child by Dr. Wisebluth, and then Solve Your Child's Sleep Problems by Dr. Ferber. And we'll put those books at the end of the transcript. And then for medical music, I like genotelab.com that I mentioned before. Uh, and they have all these different protocols for sleep. And they have a legitimate one-month free trial, not one of those fake trials where you, you give them your credit card and then you, you forget about it and you keep on paying for it. So um, something you can try for a month without um, any, any obligation. Any last parting comments? Well, whenever I talk about sleep, I always mention that illness and vacation throw off great routines, but get back in the saddle when you've done a good job and you know things are going well. Um, when the kids are better, when, when you are back from the vacation, um, or better said, I think a, a family trip, if you took the kids with you, so it wasn't a real vacation. <laughs> well, that wraps up, wraps up this episode. Happy sleeping, everyone. And sweet dreams. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to getting together again next time. Kid Doc is available wherever you find your other favorite podcast. If you enjoyed what we shared with you today, be sure to like us and subscribe to help other listeners like you find us. On our website, we will add supporting materials and other helpful items from this and other podcasts. The opinions expressed in this podcast, while carefully considered, are ultimately the opinions of the presenters and not necessarily of our employers or of any other organizations with which we are affiliated. And remember, the content of this podcast shouldn't be seen as a substitute for seeking actual personal medical care if this is an emergency, hang up and dial 911. Otherwise, schedule a visit with a caring doctor to help with your concerns.